This is Reimagining Healthcare, a podcast about innovation in the healthcare industry. It's a show for healthcare business owners, for healthcare professionals, for industry investors, and health tech entrepreneurs. On the show, I talk to health tech and healthcare innovators to uncover how they're reimagining and building a world of seamless digital healthcare experiences and how that fits into people's lives. I'm your host, Yanni Sopanos. Today, I'm speaking with Ricardo Escalon, Director and Principal Designer of Thought Collaborative, an Australian human-centered design agency. Ricardo speaks with me about human-centered design and its significance empowering ideation, creation, and product or service delivery that helps customers achieve their goals. Consciously designing for your customer beyond product or service features can set you apart from your competitors and engender an incredibly strong customer loyalty, word-of-mouth referrals, and long-term sustainable business success, as more and more of your customers succeed when using your product or service. This discussion will add value in healthcare service delivery as well, especially where digital health tools are incorporated or plan to be incorporated into the healthcare service delivery, such as digital health innovations. In all digital health service models, keeping humans at the center of your design approach is key to knowing what to focus on. As a founder or business leader, learning how to build your cultural approach to be able to know what your customer needs and help your customer succeed, in my view, is key to success in digital health innovation. Our discussion today will help you relate to customer experience design, product development, and how to drive change and ultimately deliver success to your customers. Let's jump in. Well, hey, Ricardo, how are you doing today? Yeah, good, mate. How's things with you? Oh, look, all things considered, uh, pretty well, pretty well. I'm pretty excited to be talking about human-centered design. Tell us a little bit about your journey, mate. How did you get to this point? It's an interesting question, actually, because one of my very first jobs in human-centered design was about 15 years ago working for Siemens Medical Solutions. Now, Siemens as a company is probably one of the largest in the world. They've got 200,000 employees all over the world. They're a German company, but quite global in nature. And they own this part of the business that did X-ray machines, CT scanners. And they also did the software to help radiologists organize their work. And one of my very first jobs was to redesign the workspace for radiologists. Uh, and uh, it was a very formative experience uh, of, of a very inaccessible group of humans to understand, radiologists. You can't just put a little ad on the sick and say, hey, I want to interview some of you. Uh, you've got to have some really solid relationships with hospitals to be able to have access to them and, and better understand the space. And then when they talk, it's very elevated. Uh, and you've got to uh, make some abstractions of the way they talk to really understand how you can support them through software. But that, that my very first job uh, was in human-centered design. I studied engineering. I knew that engineering wasn't quite the design that I was after. Uh, so then I did a working holiday in Canada. And in Canada, I got a job designing websites. And one of the things that ticked me off about working with websites is that somebody always made up the requirements. And I knew there had to be a better way. And I thought maybe if I go back to university and studied a master's in IT, I'd understand a little bit better about requirements. And what I found out is that university, there's a handful of subjects you can do on it at the time, but it wasn't enough. And, and that really got me started in my curiosity to how do you 
uncover the hidden requirements of users? How do you better understand what matters to people? How do you prioritize the right things to build so that you can have more impact on, on their work lives, but also help organizations find products that suit the, the customer's needs? And, and that's that's how it all started. After doing that master's, I got a bit of a, an experience abroad. I was doing an exchange program through, through my master's where I worked with a group that did usability. We did some usability testing for some Belgium, I think it was in healthcare, but my memory doesn't serve me well for that particular engagement. The boss in that uh, role moved to Pennsylvania in America, and he invited me to, to work over there. And that was one of my very first uh, jobs in design. It's a, it's a fascinating industry, isn't it? Because there's this synthesis or this kind of parallel kind of lanes or streams of knowledge that have really come together in the services sector and in the technology sector. In particular, I kind of think about some everyday products that most of us would understand. If you take a motor vehicle, for example, you can see how much effort has been put into designing that particular product to suit a human being. You know, whether it's the shape of the chair and the steering wheel and how, you know, the levers that you need to work with and interact with, we can sort of get a sense of how human-centered design is actually really valuable uh, and really important when we think about a physical object or a physical good. I think a lot of people find it hard to actually then transpose or take that same theme and concept into the provision of services. And I suppose we could, we could say into the provision of healthcare. That's two things that that started going on in my mind as you were talking about. One is uh, uh, early in my education, I did a, a subject called human factors, and that's kind of the father of human-centered design, is understanding the factors in humans that we should consider when we design something. Absolutely. Cars were part of the literature that we had to read, and, and there's been a lot of thought put into our mental model of how we think you operate a vehicle. So obviously, if you get that operation wrong, you crash. Uh, if you're clicking on the wrong thing at the wrong time, you crash. So there's been a lot of thought put together on how humans interpret the physical handles so that we don't make the mistakes. The, the classic one that we all experience is when we go to Europe or America and we turn on the wipers instead of the, instead of the, <laughs> the signal indicators. to turn right or left. And yes. that, that's been thought through. That experience has been thought through and it's just because we switch sides. But in the past, these things had um, no configuration and you have to learn every vehicle and it wasn't intuitive and it led to a lot of accidents. Planes is another one that, that there's lots of little gadgets to interpret and understand how to use and, and one mistake can cause the deaths of many uh, passengers. When it comes to health, it's, it's also life and death. If you've got an um, oxygen tank and it's got half meshes, and this is a real story, in the mental model of the, of the nurse, Putting it in between two and three is just enough oxygen for the patient. In the way the manufacturing gets done, that actually ceases the oxygen from flowing if you put it in between meshes. And therefore, you could literally kill a patient through the design of a physical object. On the interface side of things, there's the distribution of medications that need to be accurately entered into digital devices. If you get that wrong by adding an extra zero or an order of magnitude, you kill someone. In the health industry, there's also been a particular attention to certain aspects of, of better design. In services, our expectations are raised. We've got, uh, we've got really good examples of good user experiences with Apple and Google. And therefore, when we don't get those experiences, we know something's wrong. We might not be able to describe what's wrong, but we know that it's, there's something's wrong. 
And, and I think there's more effort being placed in understanding how we support humans through the products that we create. I wanted to bring up that sort of physical example as a segue into the services model because I think when we, we take for granted a lot of things that are in and around our homes and our personal lives in terms of the physical, but there's been a tremendous amount of effort put into actually thinking through what's going to be the best way for that device or that uh, equipment to be utilised by humans. And there's quite a lot of R&D that goes into that. There's a lot of um, observation. There's a lot of prototyping. There's a lot of uh, tearing up ideas and starting again. We as consumers don't really appreciate just how much time, money and effort goes into producing a good that we can then take for granted and use quite easily and engage with and sort of admire just the simplicity of it or just uh, how great it is. I mean, some, you know, in computing terms, if we think about the concept of a mouse and how we have this thing that's kind of uh, designed for the palm of our hand and we can sort of just move it around in order to move a, a virtual arrow across our screens and click on a button. These things have taken quite a lot of permutations to get through. So as a backdrop, now, if we sort of think about the service model, one of the words you used there was experience. Experience is everything. It's a broad word. And it's purposely selected in, in our industry because it's more than that particular screen that you're looking at. It's the waiting time. If you think of medicine, it's often temporally distributed. You know, you go see a doctor about something today and tomorrow you might get sick and you're trying to ameliorate that situation. If it's something chronic, it could last longer than, than a week, a, a couple of days, and you're trying to ameliorate that situation. And, and therefore, that service experience begins even before you see the doctor and it continues even after you see the doctor. And you think about it from the doctor's perspective, uh, he's, he would see a, a patient every 15 minutes. There's four patients an hour and there's probably six working hours in the day. So six times four is 24. You've got no chance of him remembering you. And therefore, for, for you to have a good experience through your medical outcomes, they need the support of software. If you think about software, software can be really difficult to navigate. Quite often I've spoken to doctors and they would rather have a stack of papers with everyone's files because they can see the limit and extent of that data. They can just open up that folder and that's it. But the way software is designed quite often hides the patient file and, and therefore it makes it difficult to care for someone over a temporally distributed time frame. Uh, so I, I think that experience is super important for us to support uh, doctors with, with the progress, with the changes, with the tests that they've done in a, in a single place. It's super important. Now, you take it to a different context. And uh, the design's never done when you just do the product. It's all the things that happen around the product. And a great example is that of a set-top box for streaming to the uh, I had the pleasure of designing one uh, at Telstra. The challenge was that this box gets given to Telstra customers at the time when they planned up. So they got more internet, they got this box given for free. Now, if you think of Australia's population, it's distributed, it's a, it's, a, it's a curve which is skewed towards the elderly. So there's small customers from, at, from Telstra that are 55 and above than 18 to 25. That's just, uh, they're, they're a premium brand, they're a bit more expensive, and therefore attracts people that, that can afford it. And uh, uh, when they get this, they, at the time, they had no clue about uh, IPTV, you know, streaming services. This is, this. they were a bit of a ahead of their time and therefore 
they receive this box as a gift. Previous time they had it, the activation rate was 40%. So 60% received the gift with an expensive bit of hardware and never opened it, never used it. And that experience started with the box. How does the box communicate the value to someone that doesn't understand what it's for? How do then we overcome the burden of registering that Telstra account with that device? How do essentially the -the out-of-the-box experience, you unpack it, you get a little guide, it's too complicated, there's a link to a video, they watch the video, they get a bit more confidence, There's there's a cable that's meant to go on the Ethernet side, but you actually don't need it. And, and therefore, that color was purposely designed to help them discover because the modem has a yellow socket, so that's been thought through. But what, what we learned was, hey, let's not include the c- cable because uh, people are trying to put it into the HDMI. It fails. They call. All of a sudden, they call. The operational costs increase. Now you need more people manning the phones because of that simple mistake of adding a cable and that you're trying to be helpful. The other part is people forget their passwords. And, and therefore, they're, they're looking for their passwords. A simple thing that we did um, is when they're trying to connect on that very TV screen, there's a little picture of a modem that's upside down with a finger or near the barcode at the back. That's where the password's found on most modems. And just by doing that, we reduce calls. So as, as you can see, almost every step of the way, that experience is misleading us. And our assumptions of what we have to do are different to what we can actually do on that product or service. And if we don't put thought of it as a business, we're increasing our operational costs. Often those costs are hidden because nobody's reporting on those particular things, but you can greatly reduce operational costs by focusing on the experience. But not only that, on that very example, we took that activation rates from 40% to 80%. And the next year went even higher. Experience matters. Experience is good for business and it's good for the customer. That's a great summary of uh, what you were describing. There's so much to unpack in what you were talking about there because the, I guess the experience is at the heart of being alive and, and being a human. Within the experience are a lot of emotions. Part of the emotion is whether we actually prefer a brand or not, uh, whether we would repeat patronage somewhere or purchase something again. And so the way that whole experience is thought about and designed you know, I kind of, it, it was a simple question, but it's complex, isn't it? Because the way that we feel as um, people often determines the repetition of things that we choose to do from that point onwards. And wanted to go deeper into that when we think about healthcare and how healthcare experiences can be designed. Because I think it's fair to say that a lot of the healthcare system to date, not all, but a lot, has been probably designed more around the practitioner as compared to the actual consumer of the healthcare service for a variety of reasons. And going forward, the idea of client-centered care and designing for the client experience, it's an evolving idea. Do you have some uh, thoughts or suggestions on mm-hmm. uh, for health providers out there on how they should think about the idea of experience? There's, there's those of you out there that are in charge of purchasing decisions. And the realization is that the person that making those purchasing decisions is dictating the experience for both the health professional and the health outcomes for the consumer, for the patient. And the way those decisions often are made, they don't take into consideration what we're talking about. In order for for the health provider to provide better health outcomes, he needs the right tools. And therefore, really understanding how they work 
and putting a list of criteria for selecting um, and evaluating some of these softwares is key. Otherwise, you in procurement are dictating a poor experience and poor outcomes. I think that decision, you shouldn't tread it lightly. For those of you on the other side, you said it best, Danny. We often design for ourselves. We make, we're talking absolutes. Uh, the user will do this. We're often functional. The task can get done. People trying to do this are struggling. And we never discover them. Because, again, the person that made the purchasing decision is not the person that's using it. And by the time we find out that there's a problem, they switch products. So it, it makes total sense. And I'm not talking about being fancy here. Let me be really clear. I think there's in health, there's plenty of opportunity of just being more than functional, being usable. Let's not worry about creating a delightful experience with flashy transitions and a good mobile experience. I'm just saying we need better health outcomes for patients. We need to better support health practitioners. Let's understand what they're trying to do. Let's understand the problem of health and let's design software that is more than functional that's achieving those health outcomes. And I think teams, teams need to realise that that's important and they need to have the right tools and frameworks for them to be able to have the right conversations internally and collaborate and have the learning lessons that it takes to deliver great experiences. And I guess just to contextualise that a little bit, Ricardo, because we're sort of in the, we're in the industry and we're sort of looking out and we apply these kinds of concepts around human-centred design and customer experience design and user experience design and user interface and all of this sort of uh, is interacting with humans. So understanding the human is kind of part of the, the, the starting point, isn't it? It's that level of empathy by being able to define who it is that you're designing for. So if you're thinking about sort of a, a mental health care practice or a physio or a dietitian or somebody who's wanting to think about the way that they're designing their healthcare service experience for their clients, what would you say would be some simple or high-level things to consider? I think, first of all, focus on... There's, there's so much to unpack on that. So let me, let me stress that, hey, those of you in procurement that are making purchasing decisions, you've got a role to play here. You've got to have better practices. So something simple that you can do is talk to people and find out what are the tasks that those health practitioners do, those administrators do, and get them involved in the selection. Get, get someone that can help you do a bit of an expert review and compare things against each other so you're more likely to make better purchasing decisions. In essence, by you making better purchasing decisions, you'll put pressure on the software providers to lift the game. You know, let them know what you're doing. Have a have a, a better approach to selecting. Use expert usability principles to select them. For those of you on the delivery side of things, we talked about the humans, and I think a very simple thing that you can do is get an appreciation that you're supporting someone's work. And it's got to be you're, you're building a business. So supporting some, someone's work is, is simply that. They've got a bunch of tasks to do as part of their job. Your job as a software provider is to understand their work and the rules in that organisation and design something that's helpful. And it's really that simple. There's, I can give you a bit more theory around that, but if all you did, stop brainstorming new features, understand their work. How are you being helpful? What are the most frequent tasks that they're trying to do? How are they serving 
long-term health outcomes. How are you supporting them? What's their job? What's their work? That's the heart of it. And, and when we talk about human-centered design, it's about focusing on people. Well, yes, focus on the customer's customer or, or the patient, focus on the health professional, the administrator, the IT department. But what I find is that you've also got to focus on your team and how you make decisions and how you prioritize the time that you give to to actually finding out how people work. More change can be done for the customer experience by focusing on the processes or how you deliver something and creating the space and support for more learning to occur. Agile has created a, a revolution in software delivery, but we're rushing towards a fictitious line. We're, we're being very effective at delivery. What we're not doing is changing the outcomes for health. What we're not doing is lifting the dial for the business. And therefore, thinking about your delivery as a means of a learning experience and being iterative and being really clear on what matters to your customers in terms of the tasks you support. And within those tasks, what is it that they're after? What are they expecting? And, and getting the right processes to, to deliver is key. So I think for, for those of you on that side of that, the fence that are developing software, you, you really have to understand your own processes and change them. 66% of digital initiatives fail, and they fail because they simply don't get feedback from the customer or user input. They fail because they're not managing the requirements appropriately to link back to that. They fail because uh, you've only got so much runway before your investors don't trust you. If you think about it from a large enterprise level, uh, enterprise is also investing their money, and they could easily shift that funding to a program of work that's more likely to succeed. And therefore, this risk mitigation of talking to the use and being helpful is key. I focus a lot on the customer experience design, which is drawing on uh, domains like human-centered design and, and UX and the like, with the recommendation that Agile as a delivery methodology uh, culturally is very good. You're right. When you when you don't know why you're doing something or who, who and why you're doing it for, then uh, you're just making changes and you have no real sense of whether that is being a positive or a negative impact on the experience of the humans. You're making those changes too. And I think that's what I take away from what you were saying there, Ricardo. It's, a, it's about what I'm hearing from you is the understanding of those initially hidden type of requirements, the stuff that um, when you live in the world of assumption on what would I do or how would I like it, you're, yeah. you're not receptive to understanding what your customer would actually like and how they would like it. And so pivoting away, and this was a really important lesson for me in my life, in my earlier uh, software development life, I thought that I knew and then I realized that I didn't know. And the people who do know are my customer. And so by being able to actually move away from self and from ego and actually start to look at it through the eyes of my customer, that's where I discovered things. Have you had that kind of experience uh, through your journey as well? Uh, well, uh, I think the more you know, the more humble you become. And, and let, me, let me say a couple of things. that uh, You're familiar with usability testing. Just for those of you on the call that are not familiar with it, usability testing is a, is a technique to evaluate software. It helps you choose direction or on concepts, or it helps you refine your interface to reduce the chances of getting it wrong, increase conversion rates, and reduce costs in delivery because you no longer have to develop it, measure it, develop it again, measure it. So you do it all on a paper prototype. 
But what I, where it's linked to what Yanni was saying is that it's a really humbling experience that a designer of over 15 years' experience can put an interface together in a flow of screens together, put it through the wash of a usability test and find 70 things to, to improve on. 70 things to improve. It's not that I'm a hopeless designer, it's that I'm trained and I read several guidelines so I can identify 70 things to change. And so let me just say that again. Something, not everything's top priority. Some of them would stop people on the tracks from completing the, the task and some of them are, are not top priority, but they all increase conversion rates. And it's very cheap to do and very quick to fix. So I think if you're not doing usability testings, you're releasing 70 problems out there that you could easily optimize. So the concept of a usability test, if we think about that in healthcare terms, how would it, how would a healthcare practice do usability testing? What do you, what do you think might be some ideas? It depends on the context. And I think we, we spoke about procurement. concept of a usability test is to have an early prototype and, and get people to, to use things and collect feedback, not, not after the fact. You do collect feedback after the fact, but while people are doing it and listen to what they say. So in the context of... Of procurement, if you could at all get get a trial happening and get some real data happening before you make those choices, and um, you'll be making better choices. If you can't get a trial happening, at least understand the tasks. That's what you do in a usability test: is um, have a list of frequent tasks that you were doing it, and and watch people how they interact with it, and listen to how they're thinking about it. And and if you've got the the benefit of an expert. Um, the difference between an expert doing it and someone that's not an expert is by an order of magnitude. So you'll always pick up more things if you hire an expert. But that, getting an expert shouldn't stop you from doing it. You know, just just get it done. If you can't do that, you can go on first principles. And, and there's a number of heuristics or, or design principles that you can follow and, and do them across the tasks to see how well they're, they're designed. It's not ideal, but it'll give you at least a way of referencing and saying, hey, this is a better system than the other because X, Y, and Z. So yeah, so just to summarize, in a health practice, be careful about your purchasing decisions. See if you can do some sort of trial with your team on the, on the things that you use and test them and, and test things in competition, choose direction. What I've observed over the years is that um, healthcare practices are you know, quite conservative and, and like to wait and see, you know, what direction their peers might be going in when it comes to the way that healthcare is delivered. That seems like a reasonable approach, but it also means that if the person you're following is uh, making bad choices, then just copying them will result in bad choices for your own uh, kind of service delivery so being a bit more proactive, I'd suggest, in thinking about what it's like to be a client of yours, to actually look at it from the outside in and say, I, I provide healthcare services. What's it like to be serviced by me? What would you describe that idea of actually consuming your own service and actually um, feeling what it's like to be your own customer? I think there's two parts to it. I think, yeah, you've got to do it. Every entrepreneur is overthinks their own experience that they create for others. Yes, you've got to do it. However, uh, we come with all sorts of biases and all sorts of levels of knowledge to to that experience. And, and hence, it's always good to get an outside perspective. And that outside perspective should be someone that's suffering the same problems. When we talk to radiologists, what do we learn? I'll just pause there for a second and, and I want you to imagine their space. What do we learn? Well, 
those images are not in some areas don't have the greatest contrast. So they read those scans in really dark environments. And therefore, the interface has to be designed differently. It has to be catering for those dark environments. And what am I saying is that if I was a software provider, imagining them sitting in, in the same room as me, I would be wrong. Uh, if we go and talk to people and see what they do, you'll learn something new that helps you pivot and shift and change. So, yep, we all got to do it. We all got to imagine ourselves on our customer shoes. There's also a risk in imagining that, that it's better to go and see and, and you'll find out. Another thing that we learned just the building on that is that the general age of a radiologist that we interviewed at the, at the time, it takes, it takes, it takes a while. It's, it's a good 10 years before you and become a radiologist. It's not, uh, you don't do a medicine degree and, and you're done, you, you've got to specialise in it. And um, in those dark environments, if you're, if you're wearing glasses, you're not, a, the people we saw, none of them could type. And they're reading images and making recommendations. They have no relationship with the patient. That's another thing we learned. They're just sifting through the next, uh, next thing. And, and therefore designing that prioritization and how that gets allocated across the radiologist was, was key. But hey, the next bit is reducing the effort through through dictation as opposed to typing. So again, I'm an excellent typer. I actually type at 80 words per minute. I could speak slower than I type. <laughs> I, I don't need dictation. But if I don't design for myself, if I design with someone else in mind, I would discover things that don't don't work for me. That's a great insight because I think uh, a lot of developers think that everybody has their sophistication in using um, technology and tools. And so it's easy to fall into the trap of designing based on what makes sense to you rather than actually designing on what makes sense to your customer and keeping that customer top of mind. Use a term a little bit earlier uh, describing that background. And I want to focus on, I guess, thought collaborative and the idea behind your human-centered design agency. So let's talk about Thought Collaborative. You've put together uh, methodologies and you've got some principles that you refer to. Talk us through Thought Collaborative and people who are interested, for example, in figuring out how to design better experiences for their clients, whether they're um, healthcare recipients, whether they're subscribers to digital health software. And tell us about Thought Collaborative and let's, let's, let's put it into that context. Yeah, yeah. So I'm going to get a bit lofty here. So for sure. those of you listening... And uh, I'll ask for your patience, but some of you might find it really interesting. The name of the business came from an essay written by Richard Buchanan, where he was explaining the different orders of design. And if you think of the first order, visual design, hey, we're just making things look pretty. Well, what tools do you need to make things pretty? You might need a brush, or if you're on a computer, you might need some sort of Photoshop or Illustrator, some software that helps you make things pretty. The next one is product design. And we're all familiar with products. They're all around us. Some engineer and, and an industrial designer have done something that's functional and mass-produced. And, and the tools for that could be CAD, AutoCAD, and uh, a deep understanding of engineering. The next level of it is interaction design or, or user experiences uh, or service design. It's the idea that we need to understand users and design better interfaces, and it's what we've been talking about. I've been in this industry for 15 years and quite often it's not knowing the right thing to fix. That's the problem. It's 
everything systemic is the culture of the organization it's how the organization needs to change it's how they organize their work it's the priorities they choose to solve that level of design that's the fourth order it's it's what matters to to, to the organization the way they make decisions and the tools for that is aligning around ideas or thoughts and how do you do it by talking to each other or collaboration and therefore uh, the name thought collaborative so i think part of what we do is design is that third order even that first order and the second order is hey let's make things look pretty part of what we do is we've got processes and uh, that help us get better outcomes for our business by better understanding a customer where we frame what's really important for the business what are the top business objectives where we deeply empathize with with customers to to put a model of how they work or a model of how they behave so that we can prioritize what matters most to them and then start experimenting and prototyping. And, and that usability testing that we spoke about and, and choosing direction and, and refining. And finally through to delivery. But delivery, I use the words finally, but it's not done there. It's about really launching something and understanding how we've shifted the dial on our conversion flows or the metrics that we've chosen and what other assumptions we need to retest and go back to the beginning. And finally, the, the other part that we'd like to focus on is we're not shy about getting into changing the way organisations prioritise their work and therefore we've got some frameworks that help people work on what matters because uh, there's, there's about five things that slow people down in delivery and one of them is directly related to human-centred design and it's the constant change in priorities. And because we don't know what the right thing to build is in, it's easy that in between flight, in between sprints, in between the quarter, we're constantly changing priorities. That's just wasted work. Every time we change priorities, it's wasted work. So if we can play a role in, in an organisation and defining norms and stopping them from doing that, even reducing it, it can be a great cost saving. We're no longer building in the manufacturing analogy, every time you change work, you're putting something in a warehouse and that warehouse is becoming full. And if you get to visualise that full warehouse, you'll be surprised how much time you've wasted. And human-centred design has the ability to align people around their priorities, but also we're passionate about visualising work and helping organisations prioritise the right things. That's great. Now, you, you talked about that in terms of orders and what I've leaned out of it is you talk about there's a business model opportunity, I guess, so designing that model, but having in mind that to get to that, you really need to sort of be able to work through an experimental framework to refine the productization or the service delivery model. And you want the culture to participate in that. So you need every member of the team to be part of that evolving system that is now being proven to be successful. And I think there's a point there about measurement as well, yeah, where you're actually getting feedback into that process. But what I want people to take away from this is when we try and design for a, a given uh, customer, at the end of the day, somebody needs to deliver on that service. And the service in healthcare is not just confined to what happens in the face-to-face -face encounter, but what happens before and after, which is uh, not directly within the control of the practitioner or the clinician that's actually delivering those services. How would you suggest people might look at the way that they're designing, modernising healthcare through uh, digitisation and you know, thinking about digital health concepts as well as, I guess, reflecting on the way that they do things and not just at an individual level but at a team level 
And what are some things that you might say to people listening out there that, and in terms of how they could benefit from engaging with thought collaborative or with concepts embedded in uh, human-centered design? In terms of what a team can do regarding getting better outcomes for that experience before and after the product. I think the most important thing to do is focus on top business problems. And it sounds a bit counterintuitive because I'm a human-centered individual. Where's the human? And the human is the business. Don't forget the business. And uh, you can gain a lot of time to focus on understanding the customer if you can stop the shifting of priorities. And therefore, if yours, you, you just call out, well, what are we trying to do here? What are the top business measures that we should be focusing on? That will stop a lot of chatter. All of a sudden, projects will fall down the wayside and you'll have sharper focus on what you can do. If the next thing that you do is, well, what do we need to understand in the customer experience to have an impact on those measures? Again, you'll realign to a much sharper focus. And you may not have the best process and methods, but that doesn't matter. The heart of it is you want to talk to people about their work so you can do something that's helpful. And that's the next bit, is increasing the times you talk to people. So there are the three things that I would focus on. Focus on problems, business problems that matter, and drop everything else. Really ask the question, on what do you need to do and understand from the point of view of the customer's experience, or the patient's experience, or the, or the health practitioner's experience, to deliver on those business results? And finally, how can you change your processes to find time to talk to more customers and understand how you can be helpful. They're the three things I'll be focusing on. It's basically baking in the methodology towards um, designing, whether it's goods yeah. or services or, or delivering experiences to uh, consumers in the context of healthcare, but actually having that methodology as part of the foundation of your culture and, and really take away that anything's possible as long as we believe we can do it and more often than not in business i often joke that it's mispronounced and it should be called busyness which means that people just do stuff because that's just what they think they need to do in their busyness but if they step back from it and go what are we doing and why are we doing this they will easily find things to stop doing and discover resource time energy to be able to focus on thinking through that, solving that big problem that you describe or, or iterating uh, that little bit that adds more value to the customer. What are your thoughts on that? Um, my thoughts when in, in my own experience, yeah, uh, business is business. Uh, we spread our chaos to whatever room we get given. <laughs> the chaos. <laughs> and, uh, the chaos, yes. So as workers, we do the same. You know, you give us two weeks to do a task and you'll be really messy about it and, and you'll have too much on your plate. So I think having really clear norms of how to prioritise this to, to have sharper focus is key. But the other part is there's a question of capacity and your, your team might need to bake in extra capacity to have more time to think about the customer experience. But let's say you've done that. There's the question of value. Some, some teams value being productive productive to what end, what we should value the outcome of the business and, and being comfortable with, uh, with a bit of ambiguity. It's, and, and then we need to build a culture so that there is ambiguity in delivery. Those developers have the, the, the skills to prioritise their own work and, and get some of that technical debt sorted 
to create the space for the delivery team to continue learning. There's that question of capacity. There's the question of really valuing the talking to customers part. And it sounds so lofty. And some of you might be hearing, well, that's not scientific. And, and, and let me tell you, yes, you can get more scientific. Yes, you can measure things more. I'm not saying don't do that. I'm saying the most effective way of discovering an area that might be of interest to your customers is by talking to them about their work. You still need to do the measurement afterwards. I'm not saying don't do that. But if all you do is measure, 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 you're testing hypotheses that you've made up or, or uh, assumptions that you're assuming that you're going in one direction. And I, I shared with you that the example of, of a classifiers website that we were testing. We looked at the analytics and the most used item on that uh, results page was the sort button. And if you take some time to think about it, well, why are people so keen on the sort button? That We need to give it more prominence. That would be the thought that was going on in, in people's minds. When we spoke to a few users, we found out that the filters were below the fold and they never discovered it. And the fold's a complicated thing because there's different screen sizes and what have you, but there's a percentage of people that just simply didn't discover those. And by us talking to them, we had that insight we changed how the refinement and sorting options were discovered, and all of a sudden we improved conversion rates. And therefore, validating is really important, but a problem that we wouldn't have picked up with this classifiers website is that when people are on that purchasing research phase, they read a lot of articles about it. They're not refining things, they're reading articles about it, and having a bit of a content strategy around it was key. And we would have known the topics to talk about and to have that content strategy had we not spoken to to users about it. So essentially, we could have asked the wrong questions on the server. We could have pre-positioned what to ask and not gotten the right responses. Absolutely. We get inspired by conversation to ask the right questions and measure the right things. The data would have said that everybody loves this sort button, but that wasn't the case. What it didn't reveal is the goals. What are the goals? What are people trying to actually achieve for themselves? And to the extent of the design that was in their hands at that point in time, they were kind of hacking around the sort button in order to get to what they really wanted to achieve. But it wasn't apparent just by looking at that data statistic. That's how I re relate to that story, Ricardo. Is that sort of a fair, fair understanding of it? Absolutely. That's a fair understanding, mate. That's exactly what went on. Yeah, it's, it's fascinating, isn't it? The more, you, the more you sort of ask people, what are they trying to achieve? Why are they trying to achieve it? What's the goal? You, you just can't help but get better at design. It's hard when you're, when you're not there yet in your mind as a software designer or a healthcare service designer, when you're not there yet in your mind where, where that hasn't opened up and revealed itself, you know, that kind of revelation, you just keep being busy. You know that you're not quite there yet. You know that you've got a ways to go, but you just don't know where to start. And I think that's something that Thought Collaborative, I think could really benefit people with that understanding how to actually lay down the right culture towards design and embedding design in your culture. So that discovery process, that ability to identify the goal or define the problem that the customer is going through, you know, being able to develop more and more of that empathy, you know, empathy, because uh, it's not just the sort button that they love. It's actually what they're trying to achieve and, and of which the sort button in a way is in the way of helping them achieve it. And they're trying to actually work, work their way around it and then experimenting with some of those ideas and, and discoveries in terms of refinement and uh, iteration I think it's fantastic. No, to that point is I think there's a lot of material out there on how to do this, but changing culture is different. 
I think you can point to someone to, hey, here's an empathy map. And they might produce an empathy map and haven't and not speak to one customer and not change one requirement or priority because of it. So the point is not to create a journey map. The point is not to create an empathy map. And for those of you that don't know what these words means, they're just frameworks. But the heart of it is building this mindset of innovation. What's innovation is building something that's helpful. Uh, it's not about being the most creative. It's about being helpful. And that helpful part, getting that mindset of, crap, I really have to understand my customers, it's it's a very hard to, thing to do for an organisation. Yeah, but certainly being able to just uh, embrace that, wanting it is the start of the journey. And then sort of with support of an agency like Thought Collaborative, you can start to move in a direction that over Absolutely. time, you're iterating your culture to be more sensitive to what your customers need, what their goals are, what they're trying to achieve for themselves. And figuring out what is it about your business that is actually helping them achieve exactly that. Or alternatively, what's actually about your business that's getting in the way of your customer achieving their goals? The the less you help people achieve their goals, the faster you go out of business. And the more you help your customers achieve their goals, the more you grow and expand and thrive. I think they're the kind of key takeaways We'll we'll end on, Ricardo, and I appreciate you uh, taking the time today to come along and sort of reveal, I guess, the diverse and and deep domain of human-centred design. And I think it's really great how you've simplified that with the approach to the principles, the orders of design, and that cultural transformation for uh, for clients that you work with. Thank you, Ricardo. Appreciate your time today. Thanks for having us, Yanni. Always a pleasure, mate. Thanks, mate. Thanks for listening. This podcast is produced in collaboration with Health Tech X, where we are working toward a world of integrated digital health empowerment for all people. If you'd like more info on how to get involved, head over to the website, healthtechx.com.au. Or if you have any feedback about the show, you can reach out to me directly on LinkedIn, Instagram, or email by following the links in this episode's show notes. And finally, don't forget to subscribe to Reimagining Healthcare in your podcast app. And if you like what you heard, leave us a five-star review. It really helps other people find the show. I'm your host, Yanni Sopanos, and I'll speak to you in our next episode.